Hello and thank you for downloading This is US Sustainability, the podcast from the US Sustainability Alliance, the voice of US sustainable food and agricultural production. In this episode, we're back in Louisiana to hear from some of the family farmers we met on the US Sustainability Alliance's recent press trip. Uh, We start in Morganza, about 40 miles northwest of Baton Rouge, at Four Oaks Farm, which is run by the Fry family. Uh, Their operation is hugely diverse with crops, including including soybeans, rice, crawfish and sugarcane. Uh, we then head to northeast Louisiana to Newton in Tenzas Parish to catch up with the Hardwicks who grow cotton and also soybeans and if you've been listening to this podcast since it launched you might remember that we spoke to the two brothers Mead and Marshall Hardwick and their father Jay on our very first episode which of course if you're new to the show uh, you can go back on the feed and listen to it at any time uh, but in this interview we find out what they've been up to since we had that conversation and we also talk about their special partnership with a leading fashion brand. Uh, Finally, at the end of this episode, we'll also get some final thoughts from David Green, uh, the Executive Director of the US Sustainability Alliance. But before all that, I'm thrilled to say that joining me online is UK journalist Josh Minchin. Uh, Josh is the editor of New Food Magazine and also hosts the Food To Go podcast. Josh was lucky enough to travel with me on that press trip to Louisiana uh, to meet these farmers in person. And so I was keen to hear what he thought. Josh, Welcome to the podcast. Should we um, start with you just telling us a little bit about New Food Magazine and also why you were so keen to uh, bring our story to your readers? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Russ. Yeah, so I'm the editor of New Food Magazine. We're a food and beverage media outlet and we cover the sector across the globe, including in North America. So I was super keen to get on the ground and see some, some innovative farming in action. Just quickly, a bit about New Food. Um, we publish four printed editions a year, but we also produce so much more content than that on a daily and weekly basis, really. So if you head to newfoodmagazine.com, you can read analysis and insight from big food and beverage manufacturers, food scientists on topics like food safety, health and nutrition, regulation, trade and economy. Um, we like to think of ourselves from farm field all the way up to supermarket shelf. So if you handle, make, sell, regulate food and drink, uh, we're interested and we'll be covering you. So uh, as you say, it was a real privilege to get to Louisiana with yourself last year. And uh, what an amazing trip it was. Absolutely. What, what was the um, the big highlight for you? Oh, it's so hard, isn't it? Because there were so many incredible things that we saw and did. To pick out just a few... I loved seeing the Mississippi River come into view when we went to the port of Baton Rouge. We sort of, I remember being on the coach and we swung around a corner. You see this mighty river that I have read about in, in books as a kid and you sort of see it in the flesh. That was uh, really, really impressive. Really enjoyed visits to all of the farms. I'm sure we'll speak about a few of those trips in just a second. I think for me, the highlight was the very last thing we did, which was going on the crawfish boat or the crawfish tractor on the pond. I quickly volunteered to do that before anybody organising the trip could uh, put a health and safety spanner in the works and jumped on board the boat and went out with my camera. Um, <laughs> I loved it. The sun was going down. You could see the rice fields. Um, it was just idyllic. And uh, yeah, my post did very well on Instagram. It's my most liked post ever. So uh, that's got to be the highlight for me. And obviously trying all the food as well while we were there. Yeah, absolutely. The food's, as you know, is out of this world, isn't it? It's incredible. No, definitely. So we're going to be chatting about a couple of the visits that we did to two of the farms. I, I guess what we're keen to kind of understand is is what struck you most about the farmers that that you met, and and all you know, obviously all the work that they're doing within um, the realms of sustainability. You know, and also, I guess, was it what you expected? 
Um, to start off with, in terms of was it what I expected? Yes and no. There were some things that I, I'd hoped I'd see from a state like Louisiana, and I did see. Um, but there were other bits that I was I was very pleasantly impressed and surprised with. In terms of my perceptions beforehand, I, I know, I, I suppose I'm in, a, I'm in a privileged position. I work with the industry every day. So I know the work that goes in at the farm level. I know the technology. I know the expertise. I think a lot of people don't. And so I think people would be really, really shocked if they saw just how advanced some of these guys are and just how technical they get um, and, how, and how much detail they're utilizing, they, they scrutinize in their work. So it probably wasn't what I expected in that we went to some very rural places, we went to some very isolated places, and yet still the, the level of progress and innovation was just off the charts. That's something I perhaps didn't expect. And I think that's what would surprise most people if they went. It's the willingness to incorporate technology. But also alongside that, it's the tradition as well. There's a there's a real unique mix of traditional family values and utilising some methods that I'm sure have been utilised since when those farms began decades, if not centuries ago. And alongside that, you've got AI tractors and, and drones. It's a real sort of heady mix of tradition and innovation. I, I, I loved it. And that's probably what surprised me most. OK, well, probably a good time then to play that first interview with the Fry family from Four Oaks Farm. Now, Four Oaks Farm was originally run by four brothers and their wives. And I spoke to two of the brothers, Marty and Matt, um, also Matt's wife, Sean, and their crop consultant, Harold Lambert. And I started by asking them to go around the table to introduce themselves. I'm Sean Fry. I'm married to Matt. And my role on the farm is mostly clerical. Um, the management of the books and running errands and kind of just making sure everything runs smoothly on this side of the operation. And I'm Matt Fry, Sean's husband, been an owner since 30 years, and um, we do everything basically pertaining to farming. I'm Marty Fry. I'm the youngest of the four brothers that started, but the two of us are here today. I am, I guess, the link between the office and the daily chores that go on out in the fields and work hand in hand. Matt and I work hand in hand daily, and but I'm also here in the office as well, working with that. And so it's a, a it's a balancing act, I guess. My name is Harold Lambert. I'm an independent crop consultant focusing in the areas of entomology and agronomy. Like I say, I'm independent, so uh, my my advice is free of conflict of interest. And I've been doing this for 40 plus years here at Four Oaks Farms and other farms in the area. That's great. Well, um, Marty, let's let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your farm. You know, it'd be great to understand the size, uh, what you're growing, because um, you've got livestock here as well. So, yeah, just give us a, li- a little introduction. Well, the farm's been around for 55 years, roughly. Four Oaks came into existence as it is in 1981, and it's presently being operated by the the two families now, uh, Matt and his wife, and Jody, my wife, and I. Um, we presently are farming roughly 8,000 acres total. That's including 1,000 acres of pasture, roughly 4,000 acres of cane, 2,500 acres of soybeans that intertwine with the cane acres, um, 800 to 1,000 acres of rice, and then an additional 12 or so hundred acres of crawfish that are also double cropped in with the rice acres so that comprises what the farm is made up of today it is a 365 day a year operation 
every single day there's something going on here. We transition from one crop, if you start in January, basically is our slowest month. We're finishing up with cane harvest in the first part of January. February rolls around, crawfish starts. Soon after that, we begin started playing rice, uh, soybeans, and then we do our all of our cultivating and, and inter-season operations on the sugar cane. And just about the time we finish with that, at some point at the end of June, July, we then start harvesting right back. We, you know, our soybean harvest starts early in, in uh, August and carries on through into sometimes October. Cane planting starts the first week in August and that carries into the middle of September. And then as soon as we finish with planting cane, we start harvesting cane, which is 100 days straight. So we'll start September the 20th, and that carries into January, the first week in January. I mean, the cane harvest is 100 days straight. So regardless of the weather, regardless of anything, it runs continuous for that 100-day that time frame. And then you have, in between all of that, the cows are year-round, of course, because you're either, you know, they're having calves, you're baling hay, you're, you know, you're feeding hay and, and doctoring on calves. And just, so that's, that's a 12-month job in itself that goes on in, inside of everything else that we're already doing. One of the things that uh, you mentioned there was crawfish. Matt, tell us a little bit about that. Well, we've been doing it about 25 years. We started it 25 years ago at just trying to learn it. Now develop what we have, which is uh, we take them to the public, to boiling places. They're not live when we sell them, all right? But taking a live product, boiling them, and then selling them to the public. And that's another whole process that gets run. One of the stores is run all year. You know, we, we sell other product through there. But on the, on the um, actual farming of a crawfish, it starts really and truly with rice. And that's how we got into this. We were already growing rice and crawfish really does well uh, after you harvest your rice the, the plant regrows and it's good food source for the crawfish. That's, that's really what kind of gave us a little incentive to start that. And from then on, it was just God gave us the ability to do it, to be honest. Uh, I had a, 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 an older man that developed the first trap that you actually caught crawfish in, and we were friends. And so he started teaching all of the different little things that we had to, you know, know. And here we are. Is, is that something pretty unique to you guys or to this area? I mean, not really. You know, the way we do it, it is. You know, it, it, there, there's a different twist to it because it's all underground irrigation with the pipes, you know, coming off of the water wells. This is all water coming out the ground, not pumped out of a bayou uh, and, and farm we don't we don't catch crawfish in the wild that that's what a lot of people done around here they uh they 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 caught crawfish in a swamp and then they brought them to market and they did it well we we actually built our ponds we graded and uh took the seed from the wild brought them in and started that that little process right there and harold we should probably explain just the significance of, of where you guys are based. Four Oaks Farms is entirely situated on alluvial soils. 
which means these soils were deposited by flowing water, namely water from the Mississippi River to the east and the Atchafalaya River to the west. And so this soil, geologically speaking, was just born last week, you might say. So we are blessed with natural fertility. Matt alluded to grading the soil because it's conducive to doing that because it's nearly flat in its natural state anyway. So the, the grading and proper management of the soil from, from that standpoint in, enhances its, its uh, drainage ability, but it also conserves soil because we can slow down the movement of, of water. Um, and so that's the key to managing the soil here. It's um, a um, natural fertility, makes, makes our fertility program simple, more simple than, say, other parts of the United States where they're forming on much older soils. Sean, a lot of what we talk about on, on the podcast is the significance of family farms in the U.S. Can you give us a little bit more background in terms of how long the family have been farming here? As Marty had said, the farm actually began in this family with his mom and dad when they moved here. Um, I don't even know if Marty was born yet. I know Matt was two or four, two, four. And um, it was my father-in-law who's now dead and his brother-in-law and they actually started what was called FNL Planners and they lived not far from here. And then of course the four boys, there were four brothers and uh, they grew up with their dad and they formed, and right here, it's called the home place now. And so as they got older, that was long before us wives got into play, the four brothers uh, married, and Four Oaks was once um, four brothers and four wives. And just recently, in 2018, those two older brothers decided to move on, retire, or move on into other ventures, and so Matt and Marty, you know, it's now us and our children also, uh, some of which work and help on the farm. Others are doing their own thing. And our hope is eventually that they come back because all of our children were raised here on the farm. As a matter of fact, that kitchen right there raised Jody and I's children. We would come here. I think we got maybe an hour's worth of work done back in the 90s. And the rest of the time was play pins and watching children play around the farm. And the, uh, the significance of the Four Oaks, I was reading on, on the website, but do you want to just tell the story of that? Um, their mom, Miss Dot, she loved pretty things, and, and she just loved um, things that meant, you know, meaningful. And to her, uh, Four Oaks, she envisioned each one of her children as an oak tree. And because they were strong, they were four boys. And so her vision was to plant four oaks in the front of her home, which are still there today. I think one had to be replanted because the hurricane got it. So they went out and they actually found oak trees in the wild, uh, their dad and themselves, and they planted them in the yard. And so that's how the name Four Oaks Farm began. That's lovely. Um, Marty, tell us about uh, some of the conservation work that you're doing here now. It started long ago. Uh, Matt mentioned earlier about the underground irrigation. And when Dad and him started, it was all on surface irrigated through water flumes and things that they had done in the early days. But soon, early 70s, they began to lay underground irrigation in conserving water because they knew the efficiency of being able to pump the water through a pipe versus trying to surface irrigate. So it started then with them. 
and we've since carried it on. We've been, you know, very involved in NRCS, um, pipe drops, um, structures, you know, drain structures that have been put in place. And then in the late 80s, we began to get into, they were talking about the grading of the ground, but precision leveling. And it was, again, uh, uh, an effort to to follow up on what they started, which was an old method of, of doing precision leveling by using water, but we've got laser equipment and equipment that was able to do it in a much more efficient way. And it enhanced our ability to rotate our crops between rice and soybeans. Uh, our soybean yields were able to go up because we had better drainage, but and then all the structures came with it. So it's been a, a lifelong uh, thing of this operation that, that we have just constantly evolved into trying to use best practices that are available to us in order to save our topsoil. It's, our, it's in our best interest, right? I mean, Harold talked about how fertile it is. And, and of course, we want to we save every grain we can because it's what we make our living with. I was just going to say, and, and the, the other benefit of grading, you're able to use every bit of that soil by putting it in production whereas before you have a bunch of drain ditches going into these main uh, waterways all of that gets flattened out and put in production and you get to use a hundred percent of the acreage very important and Harold you're doing quite a bit of work with the local university and also with some technology partners too can you talk through some of that well four oaks is uh uh, because of their their focus on on sugarcane production, have have partnered with uh, a company that uh, provides clean seed stock. In this context, clean seed stock means it is free of various pathogens that could put the crop at risk. Principally, Rattoon stunt disease, which is a bacterial uh, infection that can be rampant in cane unless it's managed. And the way it's managed is to plant clean seed. So they get to look at uh, that production uh, together with that company. And so their relationship is kind of synergistic in that the propagation of clean seed um, is handled in their normal process of producing the cane. And so the, as new varieties come along, those get placed on the form at the earliest stages. Uh, the sugarcane industry in Louisiana has somewhat of a unique setup for variety development where the university, uh, Louisiana State University uh, Ag Center, together with um, USDA, Agricultural Research Service, and thirdly, the American Sugarcane League. It's like a three-legged stool that manages or guides the development of new cane varieties to benefit the industry. And then, like I say, the clean seed stock part of it is just an, an added benefit to um, support and stabilize how well those varieties can do, how they can produce. It's been um, fascinating and great to hear all the work you're doing. I've got one final question for you, um, Sean, before we finish. I know you're going to be opening up your farm to tourists who are on trips up and down the Mississippi River. Can you tell us a little bit about what people can expect uh, to see if they're lucky enough to, uh, to book one of those uh, trips? Sure. Um, I'm going to start by saying about three years ago, we got a telephone call, and this was we were in no way ready to entertain the idea, but about three years ago, um, 
the cruise line actually contacted us directly and said, hey, get your plan together. We're coming. We, we are bringing tourists from the Mississippi Delta and Queen, and we want to come to your farm. Well, we're so busy. You heard Marty say that we work 365 days out the year, and so we, we're not tourist companies. So we kind of tabled that idea, and then just this past season, um, a representative, someone who's helping us greatly in Natchez, who actually has a tour, he contacted us and said, hey, I really think y'all would do great with this idea. So this time, since we had help, we embraced it. And so we're excited. They're going to see a lot of what you saw today. We'll show them live crawfish. We'll show them how we cook crawfish. It'll be great. It'll be great. Fantastic. Listen, I know you guys are busy uh, with all our, our visitors um, on this tour today, so I'm going to let you go now. But for now, Marty, Matt, Sean, Harold, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Josh, just um, listening to the Fry family there, I know obviously you got the chance to chat to them as well when we were on the farm. What, what stood out for you from that particular visit? I think first and foremost for us, it was the, the rain and the mud that stood out Definitely. we had we had a coach driver that I, I, I had to do a drive that i don't think he signed up for um with the fry both fry brothers said yeah just a bit further just a bit further and we're going over sort of this all sorts of terrain in this massive minibus um so i did feel for him yeah i managed to jump out of the coach sort of very last minute and grab both matt and marty fry for a very brief interview before the rain really set in right in front of the cornfields i suppose what struck me was again the mix of generations i think 98 percent of American farms are family owned. So it's no surprise to see a, a real family ethic at the Fryer farm. What struck me is what each generation brings. So you've got Matt and Marty, the two sort of older brothers, I suppose one of the oldest generations there, um, that bring with them a, a wealth of experience and knowledge. But then you can just start to see elements of the younger generation bring in, I suppose, 21st century technology. So we watched a film that was filmed by one of the members of the of the younger generation, and there's a lot of drone footage in that. And you can just start to see how it's all beginning to knit together. And I, I found that, again, that mix really, really interesting. I mean, chatting to the fries in front of their, their, their cornfields, I, I found out that it's the furthest north that sugar cane is grown in the world, which I didn't know. And they just discussed some of the precision agriculture that they use and how precise they get. They can map their farms out to each sort of square yard and know where to utilize fertilizer, pesticides, etc. So they only use what they have to use. And again, I think that's a huge misconception, particularly among consumers, is that the majority of farming is, is, is air quotes, big ag. We flood it with pesticides, flood it with fertilizer, and that's how we can get food all year round. And that, that isn't the case. It might be in some places, but it certainly wasn't at the, at the fryer farm. So yeah, I was very impressed. And it was beautiful, wasn't it? And some of the best food as well. The crawfish pasta we had was exceptional. They certainly made us very welcome with with the uh, with the lunch. <laughs> they did well. The second farm that we visited on that trip that is uh, championing uh, sustainability is the Hardwick Plantation Company. In fact, the Hardwicks have been certified for regenerative farming. And as I mentioned in my intro, uh, the Hardwicks were actually the first farmers I interviewed for this is US sustainability. So it was great to meet them in person on their farm. Here's my conversation with Marshall and Mead, where I started by asking Mead to give us a quick introduction to the farm. Uh, we are located in northeast Louisiana. Uh, we're a fourth generation farm, primarily cotton. Uh, our farm has dates back to the early 1800s. Our great grandfather purchased this property uh, in the early 1900s. And, um, you know, we're just excited to uh, be here and to tell our story. 
And what are you growing here? Well, we grow uh, corn, cotton, soybeans, a little bit of wheat, and also a little bit of grain sorghum. But primarily, we grow uh, acres-wise soybeans and cotton. And um, obviously, last time we spoke, we had your your father with us, uh, Jay. He's taking a step back from the farm now? Yeah, so he's still a partner. Um, He's kind of handed the day-to-day operations to Mead and I. Um, We kind of separate the duties that are required to run the farm for every day. Um, Our dad is very active. He does run a tractor sometimes when we need him. Um, He helps us a lot with doing some contract work with NRCS, a lot of marketing planning. Um, So he's still very involved, but uh, relies heavily on us to kind of tote the torch. What's it like working as brothers? Because I've got a brother and I'm sure (laughs) the two of us could not work together. Well, it it certainly helps that we're about, what, six years apart. So we had our moments when we were younger, but, um, you know, we... We've we've grown up together, and and obviously now we're we're colleagues, so we're working through that, and it's it's been a good relationship. Uh, things that he's good at, I don't want to do, and things that I'm good at, he he doesn't want to do, and so the the, the relationship uh, works out very well between the two of us on on how we tackle the operation. Now, I read in the summer you were the first farm approved by a fashion brand Citizens of Humanity Group to join its regenerative farming program. I'd love to focus on that for our catch-up if that's okay. Um, Marshall, first first of all, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the program and also what criteria did you have to meet in order to be approved? Yeah, so uh, after we talked last September, we went to the Textile Exchange um, Conference in Dublin, Ireland. Um, we met some um, the controlled union folks who have a certification called Regen Agri. Um, that was where we were first introduced to the certifications. Uh, we met um, the, the owners of Citizens of Humanity who were looking for a source of cotton that was grown in a region agri method. And so through coincidentally, we all came together to agree that the region agri certification through Controlled Union was an excellent certification for us to have to prove how regenerative farming practices we have. Um, it was important to me and I to uh, apply for the certification as we farm. So, because we felt we are um, been very sustainable, regenerative, kind of however you want to put it, we felt confident in our practices that we would um, pass. And we did. So, um, with that, we, we got the certification that um, made citizens of humanity feel comfortable sourcing their cotton based upon their needs and what they want to do with their marketing that they could buy cotton directly from a uh, American grown cotton plant. Can you go into a bit more detail in terms of like examples of, of the, pra- the practices that, that is involved? Cover crops, minimum tillage, those, those do a lot of, they weigh heavily on your score. Um, keeping surrounding trees uh, on, on your field borders, um, wood establishments that we have. We have, we have acres, hundreds of acres of trees that were not cut down um that that are our fields are integrated through through those uh, those woods we have an abundance of wildlife con- consisting of um the louisiana black bear white-tailed deer um, coyotes raccoons turkeys i mean just whatever louisiana can provide the louisiana all- alligator crawfish whatever wildlife you can find in louisiana you can find on our farm so those those weighed heavily on our um, passing score and, um, and also our, our ability to um, apply chicken litter um, to kind of offset some of our synthetic fertilizers. Um, 
And then through that, we're hoping to expand on that chicken litter. But those were the things that really helped us score high on, on the region agri. Mead, what does it uh, mean to you guys to have been the first approved farm for the program? It's very important to us. For one, it sort of validates a long history that this farm has of, of always trying to be more sustainable, not necessarily necessarily to be the first in regenerative, because that's sort of a term that has just now sort of come to light, I guess, in popular opinion. But this farm has had a long history of sustainability and trying to be um, you know, more sustainable from an environmental standpoint, but also a business standpoint, but also a generational uh, standpoint. So to sort of get a... Um, a not to sound cliche, but a stamp of approval is is validating knowing that, you know, we have been on the right track and we think we're going to continue to be on that right track and, and sort of having our long-term approach to agriculture sort of meet up uh, somewhere in the future with what, you know, public belief is of regenerative agriculture and, and sort of meshing how we have we have just slid right into to, to that new definition of something that we've been doing all along. It's been a pleasure being here as part of a, a, a tour that the U.S. Sustainability Alliance have organized and um, earlier today you gave a presentation talking about this program. You also talked about an experiment to show how uh, sustainable uh, the cotton that you grow here is and I can see behind us so we are actually filming this this uh, podcast interview but for the benefit of those who are listening um, Marshall I don't know how best to describe what you've got in your hand at the moment but just just t- tell us first of all what you're holding there i mean to be blunt it was whitey tidies i believe y'all call them pants it, it is a pair of underwear um but there's not a lot of it left yes so talk us through the experiment that you, that you talked about earlier today so what i'm holding now for those listening is um it is a pair of white underwear or was um of hanes underwear um and Mead and i didn't come up with the idea we 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 kind of stole it from a professor from arkansas um Bill Robertson, but it's uh, we buried a pair of cotton underwear, kind of to just show the, um, the environmental impact of buying cotton is versus synthetic products. Um, you know, as as we the clothing that everyone's wearing today um, will end up in a landfill. So imagine um, what happens to that article of clothing when it's in a landfill. Is it going to be around for thousands of years? or very little time in, in case of cotton um, months. So we buried it um, relatively shallow in the ground, a um, couple inches into the ground, and let it sit for six months. We planted it in, or buried it in December, dug it up in um, June. And the only thing that was left was the synthetic parts, the elastic parts, you know, that goes around your waist or your inner thighs um, to kind of keep it secure to your body. But all the cotton fibers were had degraded to nothing, returned to the soil, and actually added some kind of organic matter back to our soil. So um, although as fine as that would have been, it is adding to our organic matter. Yeah, it's a, it's a great experiment and <laughs> quite quite a funny one to look at as well. But um, Well, it usually gets us? a lot of attention. A picture, as you saw in the presentation, yeah. somebody standing in their underwear, you know, gets a lot of laughs at least. No, that's great. Um, okay, final question for, for you. What's next for the uh, Hardwick Planting Company? Well, the future is the limit, we think. You know, we're always looking for new technology opportunities, but where we see, you know, this operation going is is growing uh, regeneratively, growing sustainably, being part of the solution. Um, we need our farm to be here and be successful. We need to pass it on to the next generation. You know, as our dad talked today that, you know, the future of the farm, whether it's our farm or any American farm or a European farm, rests in the next generation. So 
just continuing to build upon the efforts that we've that we've done here, uh, keep building on those efforts, keep expanding those, looking for new opportunities, uh, working with brands and retailers uh, on our regenerative cotton uh, business to work with partners that are looking to source their products from a regenerative farm and regenerative practices, and so that we can all be part of the you know the sustainable solution. I forget where I was, but I, uh, and who quoted it, but someone once said, you know, if my farm's not here, I can't be part of the sustainable solution. So I need to be sustainable environmentally, but also from a business standpoint. So just building upon our efforts. And I, I would add to it, uh, you know, we have a tendency to talk about cotton, um, as y'all probably have recognized. Um, it has a tremendous ability to track it um, in terms of where it came from, where it was grown. Grains don't really have that um ability unless you take extra special steps but we've certified our entire farm as region agri so um, i think also and maybe in the far future um, is somehow be able to capture that and and sell that to someone who maybe wants to buy our corn because we have region agri certified corn although that doesn't really necessarily exist today but i think that's the future is trying to incorporate some of our other commodities to be a part of this program that's tremendous sir mead marshall hardwick thank you so much for joining the podcast again So Josh, again, listening to the Hardwicks there, I mean, obviously, from my perspective, it was so great to to meet them because, as I mentioned earlier, they, they were the um, the first people that we interviewed on, on this podcast. But, you know, getting to see their farm, seeing the operation, the work that they're doing to encourage biodiversity, clearly paying off. And I know it was a long journey to get there, but certainly um, worth it once we got to meet them. And obviously not every day that you're, you know, whilst you're recording an interview, you get to see a black bear wandering through the field with you. But again, what what was the highlight for you from meeting and, and chatting to the Hardwicks? Oh, exactly right. It was such a good day out. Um, my shocking understanding of the scale of the US was, was made quite clear to me the day before when one of the uh, Department of agriculture representative from louisiana said oh it's just a bit bit more of a drive tomorrow than we've done for the rest of the week went to bed yeah that's fine yeah it's a three-hour drive each way so uh that was incredible but yeah as you say well worth it the farm was beautiful did see lots of black bears which was such a privilege i wanted to go a bit closer for some reason and thought i could almost go up and stroke them and then one of the uh <laughs> farmers gently said i probably wouldn't go any closer if i were you because he might not get back uh i loved it Speaking to the Hardwicks, they're so passionate and knowledgeable about what they do. And again, it was a similar story to the Fries, a real mix of generations. You've got the dad, who again, brings with him so much experience. And by the sounds of it, turned that farm around from where it was. It was so forward thinking back in, in, in the 1980s, 1990s, and how he utilised um, his land usage, conservation, employing tactics and techniques that probably weren't seen in that part of the world at that time so really forward thinking and now you've got Mead and Marshall who's sort of come in and just taken that to the next level their usage of federal schemes to sell back land to the federal government and now you've got um, these hardwood trees I think is the correct terminology growing and flourishing in an area where they'd almost become extinct a few um, a few decades before You've got black bears. I think, I can't remember what the figure now was, Rush. You might know better than me, but there was like 60 or 70 of black bears on the property. Um, yeah, I can't remember, but it was it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, the, the fact that they just wander up and it's, yeah. it's amazing, really. Amazing. Yeah. So uh, it was, that was, a, again, a real, a real treat. And what I suppose impressed me most with the Hardwicks was seeing how the community interacts. That's one question I had for both Mead and Marshall at the time. It's a very isolated part of the world, northern Louisiana, southern Mississippi. The next neighbor can be five, 10 miles 
down the road and I, I think it's quite hard for us to comprehend that so my question was well how do you interact how do you um share knowledge share techniques so well, actually do you know what most of it's done at farm stores at the coffee shop at church at the school meeting at the local basketball game you sort of have a look and go i wonder what the hard work's doing over there that looks pretty good and then they go and ask and it's just really interesting to see how just by osmosis knowledge shares and now most of the farms if i'm right i think most of the farms in that area are contributing to that federal scheme and, and and getting some 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 wildlife back into into the farms. So um, I was fairly impressed with what they were doing, and I interviewed Chad Kassir as well from the federal government on the property, and he was brilliant. He was really really good, and we did see some black bears in the background, as you say. So uh, once in a lifetime stuff that. Well, actually, I mean, you've you've mentioned a couple of the interviews that that you did. I mean, it would be good just to finish off. You know, if you can let our listeners know where they can go um, to find out more about the work that you're doing those interviews that you've done and also to hear your own podcast as well yeah absolutely thanks for us so you can find all of my videos from louisiana on our, on our linkedin page that's probably the best way to see them they're also on the new feed website which is newfeedmagazine.com and as for the podcast yeah we did actually get me to marshall back on our podcast food to go a couple of months ago i think it was the day after super bowl sunday so they were both a little bit worse for worse probably a bit too harsh a little bit tired shall we say Mead was actually on the side of a road because he was uh, he was farming. So if you want an authentic listen to what farming life is like in Louisiana, check that out. It's the usual story, Spotify, um, Apple, SoundCloud. You can get the entire back catalogue on our website as well by clicking the podcast tab and you can listen to it all there or wherever you get your podcast from. Um, so yeah, make sure you, uh, you check that out as well. Nice one. Uh, listen, Josh, thank you so much for uh, joining us and um, yeah, just sharing your experiences of that Louisiana trip. Really appreciate it. Then at all. Thanks for having me, Russ. So that's almost all we have time for on this episode, uh, the last one in our special Louisiana series. Before we go, um, I'm pleased to welcome back again David Green, Executive Director of the US Sustainability Alliance, who we spoke to um, at the start of this little mini-series. Keen to get David's final thoughts on everything that we've discussed. David, what do you hope our listeners take away with them after this episode and, in fact, this whole special series that we recorded in Louisiana? I think the main thing I would like people to take away is that the the series provided some context, some more information to what it is like in the United States when it comes to food production. Um, this whole basis of having information, but then linking that to context is so important when it comes to particularly transatlantic uh, discussions and understanding everybody has a different way of doing things and we have to understand what are the guidelines what are the uh, constraints what are the opportunities you look at the united states uh, the range of weather and climate patterns and uh, production systems and land topography and so on is vast so i'd like to feel that people would get a better understanding of what it's like on the ground um, when it comes to producing food in the united states just on that note, then, are you, are you looking to repeat the exercise in, in another part of the US? Yes, very much. We have another group of uh, European media. I think there's about eight uh, journalists from different countries who will be coming to Nebraska, which is in the Midwest. That's, uh, again, we deliberately chose the Midwest. It's the sort of heartland for uh, corn and soybean production. Um, Nebraska is always uh, is also a leader in uh, research and technology and in crop production. So it will be a very different region to Louisiana, different uh, approach to farming, 
And we think uh, journalists will also have, uh, again, the opportunity to meet with officials, with uh, advisors, and uh, importantly, go on to farms. Fantastic. And um, what about the rest of 2023? What are the uh, further plans for the USSA? Well, we continue to have our outreach program. We will be visiting several EU member states later in the year, where we will have uh, briefings with government officials, uh, trade associations, uh, where we generally would have roundtable discussions. Um, Again, to put forward what we are doing from the US point of view, but really importantly, to hear from the interlocutors that we meet with, what are the issues on sustainability they face? Sustainability is a global issue. This is not just Europe versus the United States. It's a global issue and we all will have and each sector will have its own approach and its own understanding and its own demands and its own uh, opportunities. But collectively, you know, we need to have a better understanding of how we're going to approach sustaining the planet in producing enough food. That's in some ways very much the underlying motive we have when we when we do these briefings, when we have journalists and media come into the United States to get a better understanding collectively of what we're about. Excellent. David, thanks again. Always good to have you back on the podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Russ. Well, thanks again to David, uh, Josh, and of course to the Fries and the Hardwicks for giving up their time for the interview and of course the wonderful hospitality that they showed us on our trip. Um, To learn more about the US Sustainability Alliance, please do visit the website, which is thesustainabilityalliance.us. You'll find plenty of additional information about all the topics we've discussed in this episode on that site. And don't forget to subscribe or follow the podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, if you've enjoyed the show, please do give us a positive rating and review. But for now, from me, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening and goodbye.